session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. So before I get to the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight, uh, the book of the week for this week is Eight Dates by John Gottman and Julie Schwartz Gottman. Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. And you probably know the Gottmans have done a lot of great research on marriages. Uh, One of their great books is The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. A fantastic book. And I thought this one could be a good book to recommend to couples. But first I had to read it myself to make sure it would be good for that. Um, As the title itself says, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. I'm always in favor of trying to get people to have more conversations, especially uncomfortable conversations that they might ignore. And so the book goes through eight different topics to get into and has questions and and things to add um, to the conversation. I haven't read it yet, but just uh, browse through it a little bit. So looking forward to reading that and sharing that with you on next Monday's show. Uh, The book of the week that I'll talk about tonight is Upstream by Dan Heath. Um, upstream the quest to solve problems before they happen and i must say i was actually very pleasantly surprised obviously i bought the book thinking it would be good but i didn't realize or think how much i would connect to it the way i did and i really enjoyed the book and especially i bought this book not thinking too much about it but shortly before stores started closing here in the los angeles area Uh, But the quest to solve problems before they happen, it's very much aligned with what we're dealing with now. Uh, Most of us could not have anticipated the things we're going through with the coronavirus pandemic and how it's affecting our lives. And of course, how we've handled the pandemic itself. Uh, It would have been better if we had a lot of upstream thinking, meaning that we thought about things Um, ahead of the problem rather than waiting for a problem to arise. And so the book is a very well-written. Dan Heath has written a bunch of really good books with his brother Chip Heath, including one of my brother's favorites is Made to Stick uh, and a few others that are really good. But um, he's a great writer. You just really get interested in the stories. He shares a lot of great examples. So I had a great time reading the book. Let me get into it a little bit. And I'll start with the story he starts off the book with, or truly not a story. It's a parable, a public health parable. So you and a friend are having a picnic by the side of a river. Suddenly you hear a shout from the direction of the water. A child is drowning. Without thinking, you both dive in, grab the child and swim to shore. Before you can recover, you hear another child cry for help. You and your friend jump back in the river to rescue her as well. Then another struggling child drifts into sight, and another, and another. The two of you can bravely barely keep up. Suddenly, you see your friend wading out of the water, seeming to leave you alone. Where are you going? You demand. Your friend friend answers, 
I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the water. And so this is a public health parable. So they're trying to save all these kids. And as they're coming, of course, they're going to save each one. But the friend gets out of the water, what seems to be almost irresponsible. But he's going to try to save the kids that are getting thrown in or stop the problem before it becomes one. And so in so many areas of our own personal lives, but also uh, on a societal scale, we tend to react to problems rather than try to prevent them from happening. And always prevention works better than um, reacting or treatment after the fact. Even me as a therapist, as I was reading this book, this thought came to my mind that, of course, I think therapy can be very helpful in helping to repair the wounds from our childhood. But no matter what, it, we'll always be better off and healthier if we never had those wounds in the first place. So if our parents and the families uh, we grew up in took better care of us or met our emotional needs, or if we didn't have traumas that we experienced in our life, we will do much better than if we try to fix the problems um, by just trying to uh, uh, solve them after the fact. So even with something like therapy or any kind of health care, we see that it's always better to prevent the problem. And that's a main theme that comes throughout the book is about public health, actually, a lot of other areas of life too. Uh, but public health, a very important field. Any of you shout out who are studying or in that field, but there's so much you can contribute to this world. But people in public health are often held back because people don't value upstream efforts enough because they don't have as much of an impact in the way that downstream efforts do. So if you see someone save someone's life, um, you think that's amazing. They fell out of a building or something or they're, you know, drowning, as the story says. That's amazing if they jumped into the water to save them. But if someone built a bridge so that no one would fall into the water, you wouldn't even realize it or recognize it. It would just happen. And so we wouldn't even celebrate that. And so upstream efforts are oftentimes less exciting uh, grab less attention. They're a lot harder to measure, even that they're working. And so because of that, people put a lot less attention there, unfortunately, even though they can have a much bigger impact. Uh, so this book is all about trying to shift that paradigm, try to get us to see how to think more in an upstream type of way. Lots of examples of people doing that in different types of things from uh, one of the first examples is Expedia, who was getting 20 million email or 20 million phone calls a year because people were not getting their itinerary or they couldn't find the email. And so they found a way to cut that almost completely uh, gone by making a few changes and that saved them so much money. Um, but no one thought to, to think of that for a while. And I'll get into some of the reasons why we might not do that. I was sharing an example with a friend today. If you were on a plane ride and you landed safely, you just get off the plane and think that was normal. But maybe you don't know that someone had come up with a new system to check the the uh, mechanics of the plane to make sure it was okay. And now because of that, planes some planes are not crashing every year. You don't really know something that doesn't happen. It's very hard to recognize that and to see that. And he gets into that. Um, near the end of the book as well. But so what are some of the reasons why we don't think upstream or what gets in the way? So the first one he talks about, he talks about three barriers to overcome. The first one is problem blindness. We don't oftentimes recognize that there even is a problem or we just accept the problem as a given. 
So he opens that chapter talking about football injuries, American football, and how it was ex accepted that they're going to get these hamstring injuries or different things. But then a, a doctor and trainer, he looked more carefully at what the players were doing and saw that there was things that they can recognize before the injury happened and also changes fundamentally to the dynamics of how they carried their body and put weight, let's say, on different parts of their, their legs and things that could prevent or at least prevent some of if not all of the injuries. So oftentimes, unfortunately, we have problem blindness thinking we don't even see the problem or we just think the problem is a given. Another example in that chapter was related to uh, graduation in the Chicago school district. And you could just accept, you know, a lot of these kids are dealing with many struggles, hardships. We're going to have a low graduation weight, which of course those things do affect graduation weight rate, but they were able to find some ways to have a significant impact, especially focusing on the freshman year and seeing that that's very important in indicating the likelihood that someone will graduate. And so by putting that emphasis and changing some things that were happening freshman year, they actually increased the graduation rate something like 25%. So there has to first be a recognition of the problem, but oftentimes we have what he refers to as problem blindness, where we don't see that there's even a problem or we just say, say that's a given, you know, these things are going to happen. The next one is lack of ownership. So uh, of course, we don't like to think we're responsible for something because then we might feel guilty. And also then we have the responsibility to fix it, which might be very difficult or at least face that challenge. And so as a result, people oftentimes don't want to accept the ownership. And especially with a lot of these bigger societal problems, it affects or gets affected by many different organizations um, or different structures within a government. So no one group feels fully responsible for it. So we're all thinking, well, it's just someone else's problem or it's not my problem to fix this or I can't fix it alone, so I'm not going to fix it. So that's another big um, barrier that comes in the way of thinking more upstream is that there's a lack of ownership. People don't take responsibility. And the third one he mentions is tunneling. And he starts that by talking about nurses who oftentimes, and of course I can imagine right now um, that's even more uh, strongly the case, who are trying to put out little fires. They run out of towels, so they steal towels from the next unit. But of course, that might mean that unit might run out of towels. And then this is going on, and on the spot, they have to do things. And they really have to put out fires in the moment. There's not a lot of time for them to think more upstream. And so oftentimes, we can feel that way. Well, there's not enough time to think about the bigger picture. I have to deal with so many things right now in the moment. I can't think about how I can change this whole structure system of how things are going. And so oftentimes we don't realize that we maybe can do that or we can assign a team to do that, but the tunneling can definitely get in the way. And then next he gets into a bunch of different um, things you need to think about when you're doing something upstream, like how do you unite the right people? So as I was saying before, when we're looking at big issues, almost always it's going to involve or need the help of multiple people. Even at the school, when they're trying to help kids graduate, it's not just teachers, they need administrators, they need coaches, they need uh, counselors and different people, parents, all sorts of different people to come together. So uniting the right people is a big challenge in trying to make upstream changes. And so he mentions a few other ones, like how hard it is to change uh, the system, how do you find your point of leverage getting in, um, and each one 
give some examples of, uh, of each of those. Uh, but the last one that I find really interesting is who will pay for what doesn't happen? And this goes back to that bigger uh, picture question again, where when you tell people, I'm going to prevent a problem from happening, um, it can be hard, first of all, that they think it's going to work, but even that they know the problem would have happened had you not intervened. We don't always really know. And later in the book, he shares examples, for example, Y2K. So any of you are, who are old enough to remember that, at the turn of the millennium, going from 1999 to 2000, about, I think, a year, year and a half before that, there was this panic that if uh, all the computer systems, all the things that have been programmed to change uh, or that monitor everything that we have in life from you know people worried about planes and banks and electricity and all that all those things if they were always measured in the way of two digit numbers when it becomes the year 2000 somehow there it's not going to work it won't be able to recognize what's going on and there were these big fears a panic about what was going to happen worldwide would it lead to catastrophe would electricity go out would all the um, you know planes stop working or there was even fears of planes falling out of the sky because you know, all the computer systems don't work. And there were task forces that were assigned to try to help address the situation. Now, what happened on January 1st, 2000? Very little related to Y2K. There were a few issues here and there. It's almost laughable to things. Now, they're not so unimportant, but things related to uh, at the airport picking up on certain air, wind shear or something. I don't even really know what that means. Um, but th they were very small. Now, someone could say, well... See, it was nothing to worry about, um, but we don't know if that's really true or if actually the ways that they intervene had an impact, and we don't really know 100%. And so as he says, when you try to work upstream, very often it could be a thankless job or a job that doesn't get a lot of recognition because people won't realize what you did had such an impact. But if you see a baby almost drowning in a river and you jump in and you save that person, you're a hero. And of course, rightfully show. so, you should be recognized as a hero. But again, if you're the engineer who comes up with a way to protect that bridge so no babies fall out, most people will have no idea who you are. So he says, if you want to get an upstream work, you should recognize you might not get much recognition yourself. You might not get um, the kind of attention you probably deserve for what you are doing because actually most people won't even know the impacts you're having in some way you're an invisible or more invisible hero which is actually kind of nice in the book that he shares these stories of different people or different people who came together to make these positive changes to show the impacts that they've had in a positive way to to give them some of that attention but very often that's not the case and, and at the end of the book he gets into how do we deal with the improbable which include things like y2k also he talks about uh, viruses and things. He mentioned Ebola earlier in the book, talking about how that could have been catastrophic or how we should be aware of things like that. And later on, um, talking about viruses. And this book came out this year, but I don't have any um, conspiracy theories that he knew this, that this would happen. Of course, books are usually years in the making, uh, but it was interesting and very timely considering what's going on now that he talked about how we have to be ready for some improbable threats that we might not even think are going to happen. But the last chapter of the book talks about, it's called You Upstream. And so you read all these stories and examples of people who 
have challenged themselves to look more upstream and to make initiatives that have a big impact. But also each of us should think of that too. And for myself personally, I was thinking about that, uh, for example, working with the homeless and especially homeless children or children who are experiencing homeless. And I do tutoring and I talk about it and I try to make that impact, but there's probably much more that I can do. And so I was even thinking today and while I was reading the book, what else can I do more upstream or how can I think more upstream about that? And so in a way he challenges you to think about what you can do. And so very often we read a book or we hear about people and we think there's something special or different about them. And we don't think we could be that person or be that hero, but of course we all can. And so uh, that last chapter, I really liked that it was trying to invite us to think, well, what can we do to think more upstream? So I, I highly enjoyed the book and highly recommend it. No matter what you do, as I mentioned, there, a lot of it came down to public health initiatives, but definitely not. There was things related to sports, education, um, businesses, and a variety of different uh, organizations or systems at play. But I think everyone could benefit from thinking a little bit more upstream, whether it's in your personal life, professional life, and any type of issue you care about. How can you think more upstream? And usually you might think upstream and there's even further upstream. And then you realize you can actually do even more or have a bigger impact if you think a little bit further back. So highly enjoyed this book, Upstream by Dan Heath, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. Hope you'll check it out. And if you do, let me know what you think. Let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So during the commercial break, I got to interact a bit with some of the people on Instagram Live. Thank you for those of you who are tuning in there. Um, and we had a few questions related to various topics. One thing I wanted to talk about related to something that we're all dealing with. I saw a movie uh, last week, which was the f not the first time I'd seen it, but I hadn't seen it since it came out. And it was Groundhog Day, uh, which maybe you've seen starring Bill Murray. Very funny, interesting movie, but essentially the, the movie is about this person. He's a weatherman, kind of a grumpy guy, kind of a mean jerk to most people around him. And he has to go to, uh, what is it, Puxatawney? I think in Pennsylvania, where they do the Groundhog's Day um, reveal where a groundhog comes out and if it sees its shadow, I think there's six more weeks of winter, but if it doesn't, then there's not uh, six weeks of winter. It's a very strange tradition. If you live in America, it's probably weird. If you don't, it's also weird. Um, so the movie itself is also called Groundhog Day. And what happens is Bill Murray goes to sleep and he wakes up and the next day he sees it's the same day. And so essentially that's what he's dealing with is that every day he goes to sleep when he wakes up, no matter what happened the day before, it all essentially goes away and he starts the day brand new. And so it drives him a little bit crazy, but we see the um, journey he goes through, which I'll talk about a little bit. And I thought it was very uh, timely because right now a lot of us feel like Groundhog Day where because you might not be working or you're working from home, so many things are canceled and not happening that it might feel like Groundhog Day for you too. And many people have even commented of things like that. Every, every day feels exactly the same. And so in the movie, by the way, there'll be spoilers in this movie. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, sorry for the spoiler 
alert, but it's maybe 30 years old. So I don't feel too bad about ruining it for you. But so he, again, he goes to sleep, wakes up. And what you see is that at first he tries to use this to his advantage, uh, even trying to understand things. He goes and asks a girl a bunch of questions. Where did you go to high school? What was your senior teacher? A bunch of different things. And then the next, well, his next day, but really it's the same day, he goes to this girl and makes it seem like they know each other and they um, maybe were friends back then and he knows these things about her and he's able to connect to her. And essentially he's using it to try to sleep with her. And he does that actually with another girl too, his co-worker. And so we see at the beginning, Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day, he is trying to use this, you know, it's not really a superpower, but this thing that he's going through for his own benefit, very selfishly, he's trying to just take and get, okay, maybe I can have sex with this girl I'm attracted to. Maybe I can use it financially in different ways. Uh, and that's initially we see him do that. Or even first he does some crimes or he tries to kill himself even a bunch of times to see what happens. And then he just wakes up the next day and he's back to normal. But then you see him start to evolve a little bit. And so he tries to to sleep with this coworker a few times. And there were some things, definitely when you think about things like the Me Too movement and feminism and things like sexual harassment that have changed, a few of his comments and things he did, I think, would likely not be in a movie that would be made today. But of course, that's always going to be the case when we look back on something uh, 10, 20, 30, especially further back years ago, we might be surprised at things that were acceptable or taken for granted that we're not okay with. It's actually funny in a way we can say that relates to this upstream that sometimes something we take for granted, we don't realize we don't have to. But anyway, it, uh, over time, we see him evolve a bit. And actually, he starts to use this, if you want to call it again, almost like a superpower, to help himself grow and also to help other people. So he does learn how to play piano. It does seem to impress the girl that he likes, but he's working on himself in that way. But then he also starts to help people more. He always walks by and it's kind of, this is the things that are interesting is that every day the same things are happening to him are happening around him. He passes by someone who appears to be experiencing homelessness and who asks him for money. And at first he kind of pretends like he's looking for money and he can't find any, but he also keeps ignoring them. But over time, he then tries to help this man and he tries to feed him, tries to get him even medical care, and even is in really invested in trying to make him survive. And actually, no matter what he does, he ends up still dying. Uh, but he tries hard to try to save this man's life, which is very sweet. He's trying to save this person's life with this information he has that this person could need help. And then he starts helping other people in different ways, from giving advice to a couple who are engaged but thinking about ending it, or one of them is thinking of ending it, to, to saving a boy who falls out of a tree. And so we see that slowly he shifts his mindset from trying to get and take and more to see what he can give with this strength that he's been given or this knowledge that he has that other people have or this opportunity. And so we see him transform in this way and his co-worker who he, uh, at the beginning, she very much thinks he's a jerk because he is acting like one, starts to see him very differently. And again, it's very strange because each day starts brand new, so he can be very kind to her. And then the next day she won't remember it and will go back to thinking of him the way she did on the start of that day. Uh, but he 
slowly is changing the way he's acting, where it's less about taking and getting and more about giving. And so a few things I thought were interesting. One is I've always talked about success, um, whether it's on this show or at speaking events, rather than thinking of it about what you get, which is what most people think, getting money, getting fame, getting attention. Uh, I think we should switch that around and think of it as more about what you give. So a successful person isn't someone who has a lot of money. A, sex, a sec, successful person is someone who's given a lot to humanity, helped people, made people's lives better. That's how we should measure success. So we see him at the beginning of the movie just trying to get and see what he can take, take advantage of and exploit people with what he knows and this opportunity that he has that others don't. But then we see over time he switches to trying to help others, to develop himself more and to give more of himself to other people. And we see that he feels a lot better. He's happier. People around him are happier. He's having a big impact on a lot of people. And it's not quite clear what happens. And I wasn't really sure what is the thing that changes and maybe someone could give me some insight. But then he finally, after he loves this girl, the one that he initially was just trying to sleep with and essentially take advantage of. He does almost fall in love with her, it seems. And then when he wakes up, it is the next day. Uh, finally, it becomes, I think it's February 3rd or whatever it is. And it's no longer that same Groundhog Day. And the movie ends in a way there. They seemed to get married and have kind of a happily ever after moment. But we see a huge transition in this uh, character played by Bill Murray. And I thought it was an interesting movie. And again, you might relate to it because right now every day does seem to feel like Groundhog Day. And this is uh, from this movie, this term has come into our lexicon. When you talk about something happening day after day, you say it feels like Groundhog Day. So maybe if you've heard that before, it comes um, from, from that. So once he gives more of himself and once he um, finds, you can say even a meaning and purpose, someone actually just made this comment on the Instagram live, uh, you see that he goes to the next day. So I wonder if that's what he needed to do. So that's one thing for all of us to keep that in mind. We often think of success as what we can get, or if we have some kind of strength or advantage, unfortunately, we're often told, well, then you should use that to get more for yourself. But what we see is that he can use that also to give to others. And that's something that we'd like to do, which I think is very important. So that's uh, the first thing. And the second part is, um, again, a lot of us are experiencing that feeling like Groundhog Day, where you wake up and it feels um, like the same day all over again, or it can't. And I've experienced it myself. And I think everyone I've talked to sometimes like, wait, today, today's Friday? Or today is Saturday? And we've lost track at times of what day it is, um, or... Uh, which, you know, even week it could be or the date uh, on, uh, you know, let's say it's April, whatever, you might forget that. And so it can feel like Groundhog Day. And we can also learn maybe from what he went through to think of this time also develop ourselves a bit. Now, I don't want to go to this extreme that every day should be so productive, as productive as before, because I actually think one of the things we might recognize in everything that's happening right now with things slowing down and a forced reset and reboot is that we were obsessed with productivity, quote unquote, in ways that were not necessarily productive to the human spirit, productive in living a good life, in having good relationships, in connecting 
um, with our loved ones and doing good things. We just thought of productive in a different way. So I don't want to say you should spend all your time and you have to improve so much during this time or else you should be mad at yourself. But I do think it's a good time to think about what you'd like to see happen in your own life. What would you like to improve on? How can you be a more giving person? What can you do to develop skills that might actually make you um, a stronger human being? And, and someone actually sent me something from Malaysia. It was very kind. She wanted me to answer some questions for a class she had in Malaysia studying, I think, journalism. And, and I had to answer it. And at the end, it was some advice for psychology students, but it was my advice really for anyone or any student. But um, essentially, it was that we should work hard. And I know that sounds easy, and who's going to disagree with that? I understand. But you should work hard because you deserve to be successful, because you deserve to be good. Not because if you don't, you're a loser or you're weak. You do it out of the love for yourself, that you want to be the best that you can be. So you want to make yourself strong. And strength is an interesting word, because a lot of times we think of strong as something people use to hurt other people. If you have even power, you can hurt people. You can get what you want. You can use it in a way to take advantage of other people um, or make sure that you're the one who is happy. And so even a lot of times strength is used to hurt people. You can use your strength to hurt, unfortunately, which to me is a waste of strength. So if you're a physical, uh, strong, physically strong person, but use it to go beat people up for no reason or to enforce some kind of harm for no reason, that's not a good use of strength. It'd be better that you didn't have strength at all. Your strength should be used to protect, to defend, to help. That's the only reason why it's worth having or else it's better not to have it at all. And so I didn't say all this in what I was writing there, but it's that we want to create uh, the strength in ourselves to be as strong as we can be, to be the best at whatever it is you do, both in your career or whatever else you're doing, and then to use that strength to help the world as much as you can. Now that you are as strong as you can be, now use that to save the world, to make the world a better place. Um, you know, easy examples are things like you're a scientist, study your field, your discipline so hard that you can create new things that will help lots of people. So you're studying, you're trying to understand, you want to become the best you can be. I try to keep that in mind to myself, both in the clinical work that I do to try to be the best therapist I can be. Of course, that's one of the reasons why um, I read the books is to continue adding to my knowledge and understanding and hope that that will help both with my clients, but also in what I can hopefully offer here in the show. So sometimes I think of when I'm reading the books is kind of like that's my version of, let's say, a, a basketball player practicing since I love sports. That's them putting the work in. So I'm trying to put my work in there as well. So I hope that we can think of this time both as a reset to think, okay, how would I like to use my time even when things go back to quote unquote normal, but also to think of what we'd like to add to what we were doing. How can we build ourselves up and to become even better at whatever it is that we do in our lives? And so when I watched the movie Groundhog Day, it was interesting. It gave me this idea to talk about it on the show because I felt like it was something very relatable for all of us that we feel like every day does kind of feel the same and that can feel boring. We can get very lazy and sluggish and some of that is inevitably going to happen, but we can also 
use this time to try to develop something for ourselves to to be better. And someone right now on Instagram uh, live wrote plant a tree. And it was interesting. There was a quote in the book upstream that I really liked that said, uh, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is now. So we can think of um, whatever it is we want to do, however we want to work on ourselves and improve, why not start now? So I hope you will think of things you can do, not with the pressure that you have to become perfect at something or do something amazing in these however long it's going to be that life will be a little bit different. But there are things we can start doing every day and making some steps in the right direction. So the movie was Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray. It's kind of a classic American movie. Pretty interesting and I think especially right now you might relate to it, so check it out. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So during the commercial break, I got some questions. Thank you again for everyone um, who was asking questions on the Instagram live. And several people asked about dealing with anxiety, which is always something we're dealing with, but especially during these times. And so if we look at anxiety in general, what is anxiety? It's this concern or preoccupation about what's going to happen in the future. And oftentimes a vague, it's not just about a specific thing. Oftentimes a specific thing, we might think of that as a worry. I'm worried about something tomorrow. But this anxiety is this unsettling feeling. And I think if there was some way to measure anxiety using, let's say, a blood test or uh, a breathalyzer, actually maybe that would make more sense because it could affect your breathing. But we would likely see that the world is just experiencing more anxiety now. Just everyone or collectively there's more anxiety because we're dealing with a lot more uncertainty. We're already dealing with economic uncertainty and hardships. Of course, the genuine medical concern of the virus and how it can affect people is there and so much is happening and there's so much change also people are scared of when are things going to go back to normal how much back to normal what can we expect and so all of that uncertainty is almost definitely going to create more anxiety in us and so what we first want to recognize is that it can be understandable that we have more anxiety I know a lot of people think, okay, uh, even they come to therapy and they say, hey, you know, I have this d- the depression or this anxiety, just uh, help me get rid of it. And of course, I understand where they're coming from. It's very distressing. It doesn't feel good. And you don't want to have that feeling anymore. It makes sense. But usually whatever it is we're dealing with from anxiety and depression, we might be able to make it less. We might get it more under control, learn how to manage it, but it's very unlikely we're going to make it disappear. And so we don't want to even think about it sometimes in that way of how do I make anxiety go away? Because it probably won't. You really can't be a human being without having that capacity for anxiety at some level. So we have to accept that part. And this also relates actually, you know, the book Upstream I talked about in the beginning of the show, this mindset that we have, especially a very American mindset in our healthcare system, and it extends to mental health how we think about it, is that, okay, I have this problem, just take it away. Give me the pill that makes this pain disappear. You know, give me the pain that makes this ache go away. Give me the pain that just makes my blood pressure go down. And so in mental health too, give me this 
pill to make the depression go away, the anxiety go away, or even give me this therapy? What can you tell me in this moment? And I do see it a lot in the Iranian population as well that have this mindset that you go to the doctor and the doctor is just going to fix your problem. But most things are not this way. Most things are not fixable in that way either. They're not just going to disappear instantly. And so anxiety is going to be the same way, especially during this time. You're going to have some anxiety during this. It can make sense. I can even speak for myself that I felt more anxiety during this time. I feel like I'm trying to deal with it, trying to do different things to make it easier. But I think definitely I felt it. Even maybe it was a week or two ago, I re realized my breathing was a little bit sh more shallow, which likely was relating to feel feeling more anxious. So the first thing is having an understanding and acceptance of what's going on. And what I see as such a big problem in life and also in, in, when I work with clients in therapy is we so often judge ourselves for feelings. And so sometimes we even call this a secondary feeling. So someone feels sad, which might not feel good, but that's not their biggest problem. The bigger problem is they're sad and then they tell themselves, oh, you're such a loser for being sad. Oh, it's so weak to be sad. What are you doing? No one's going to like you if you're sad. Who's going to want to be around you if you're sad? And all those judgments and feelings on top of the original feeling cause more distress than the feeling itself, rather than just being in touch with, oh, I'm kind of sad right now. I wonder what that might be, trying to understand it more. And then even using that, we can then uh, maybe try to figure out what to deal with it or what to do about it. But first, just understanding it and being in touch with it. So rather than trying to get rid of our feelings, the first thing we have to do is embrace them, understand them, and face them. Not get away, but face. And this can be very um, effectively done with things like mindfulness, meditation, getting more in touch with what's going on internally, both physically and, and mentally. And that can make us more aware of what we're feeling, what's going on. Something I've talked about on the show before is that when we think of meditation, people tend to think of a very Zen-like feeling. You're calm, everything feels good, you don't have any anger, any resentment, any bad feelings, you're in this perfect, peaceful state. And of course, it's more likely that if you practice meditation, you will get more calm over time. But when you meditate and get in touch with your feelings, at times you're going to get in touch with painful feelings. You might start to... Uh, recognize, gosh, I'm resentful of this person, or maybe I'm very sad about this and I didn't realize it, or I'm anxious about this thing. So when we meditate and get in touch, we actually will find that there's a lot of things inside that maybe we don't always like, but that's the reality. Just like if you go to the doctor and she does an x-ray of your bones, they'll tell you which ones are broken. They won't think, well, you might not like to hear that this bone has a fracture or it's broken, so I'm not going to tell you. So we do the same thing. We try to get in touch with what we're feeling because that's going to be information about what we're going on. And without that information, we can't make the important changes and to understand ourselves better. So first we have to get in touch with what's there. And right now what's interesting is that even with much more free time, which of course is not true for everyone, some people with kids and of course still working and so many things they're dealing with, they still have... Maybe they're even more busy than before. But for a lot of us, we do have more free time. But if you think about it, you might realize that you're not spending that much more time with yourself. Now, I know you might be thinking I'm home alone all the time. But what I mean by, by yourself is with nothing else. 
and getting in touch with what's there. And something I talked about a few weeks ago on the show is how meditation is one of those things, kind of like exercise or reading books or lots of other things that people say, well, I don't have time for it. If I had time for it, I'd love to do it. Or I'll, I'll get around to it when I have more time. But then now we're realizing that even though we have a lot of free time, we're not doing those things. And so meditation likely hasn't been a part of your life because you don't have the time for it. It's that you're avoiding it for some reason. And it does tend to make people uncomfortable. It does make them a little bit anxious to get in touch. And so people these days, what are we doing? We're on our phones a lot. We're watching lots of TV. We're keeping ourselves preoccupied rather than getting in touch with ourselves. Now, of course, you're going to do a lot more things like watching more TV or doing other things um, as well because you have more free time. But we still want to give some time to ourselves. So we see it's not about having time or else you would have done it with the extra time that you have. So that's one big step. It's not about getting rid of your anxiety, but first getting in touch with what's there. And sometimes people think, well, if I'm feeling bad, why would I want to get in touch with it? So they might think this is a time to do it less. But getting in touch with it means that you can understand it better and then get in more in touch with what you're dealing with and then make some changes in your life that might have an effect on that. So it's not just about dwelling on the feelings, but getting more in touch with it. And what people tend to find is that when you face your feelings, they're more likely to change over time. So feelings come, feelings go. A great analogy I like about um, thinking about feelings in this way is like they're, they're like waves. So you can go to the ocean and you know, you see the waves coming and let's say you see a wave you really like. So you want to hold it more. You can't do anything about it. The, the ocean's going to take it back in. Or if there's a wave that comes in that you don't like, you can't push it away. It's going to stay for a while, but then it's going to go back too. And so our feelings are the same way. There's not a lot we can do at times to force them to stay or go away or always feel a certain way. Our feelings are going to ebb and flow and have different types of things that will affect it. But we want to just be aware of what is there and recognize it while it's there. Something that you might call non-judgmental awareness, that you're aware of it. You don't try to um, get rid of it, but you also just face what's there. And that actually can help us in dealing with anxiety. You're not going to get rid of it. If anything, avoiding anxiety makes anxiety grow. If you have a fear of spiders, then what you'll tend to do is if you even think about a spider or someone says a spider is there, you're going to go away. Anxiety makes us want to avoid. But unfortunately, when you keep avoiding those spiders, they become scarier and scarier to you because you just think of this feeling of, oh my gosh, it's so scary. And every time you feel that feeling of anxiety and you go away, it reinforces that relief. Ah, oh, I was so scared, but now I'm away from it. The only way you overcome a phobia is by facing it. It would be nicer if there was some way not to do it this way, but it's the only way that you face that thing you're so afraid of to realize it's actually not that scary. That's the only way it works. There's no way of avoiding it to get less anxious. You face it to see it's not that bad. And we've all experienced this a million times, maybe not a million times, but many times in your life. Not necessarily on the level of a phobia, but let's say you have a paper to write for school and you're like, oh, how do I start it? What am I going to do? Uh, I don't want to do it. And you keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. Then you write it. Even sometimes you've maybe had the experience that 
it's actually kind of fun. I'm enjoying some of this. It's not that scary. So, uh, or you have to call someone or do something, have a conversation. That's a big thing. And the book of the week for this week will be about having those conversations with a person you're in a romantic relationship with. And it can seem so scary. And then you have it and you say, oh, it's not that bad. Uh, oftentimes the analogy I like about this is, you know, there's a monster, you think there's a monster underneath your bed and in your mind it's so scary and big and it's going to tear you apart and all these horrible things. But then you look under the bed and really you see there's no monster at all. Or let's say you see something, but it's not that scary, right? But in our head, it gets built up and built up the more we avoid the thing. So a big thing about dealing with anxiety is first to face it. Meditation helps. Then, of course, there's things we can do that might help. Exercise is very important. And with gyms being closed and um, many of us just being less active before at least you'd get out of your house, let's say, to go to work or do something, and now you might be home all day and you're trying to respect the stay-at-home orders as much as possible, so you're, you're, you're staying home. But you have to keep yourself active. We know that when we don't stay active, it's bad for things like depression, anxiety, of course, physically as well. So you're going to feel more anxious. There's kind of a feeling of pent up energy. So just sitting still is not going to help your anxiety. We should try to also go for a walk, wear a mask, but go for a walk. Or if you have exercise equipment or you can do something, there's so many things you can look up online, doing yoga, doing cardio, whatever it is to get that workout in. So that can be very important. Of course, talking with loved ones, something that is being uh, happening a lot more is people are FaceTiming and communicating. And oftentimes people have said rather than calling it social distancing, we should call it physical distancing. So we're not physically next to each other, but we can socialize and connect. And a lot of people are experiencing that. And I am too. There's people that I've never FaceTimed with, but now I have in the past few weeks and we've connected and and talked and it's been nice so we can connect with others that can help us feel good too feeling connected can help with feelings of anxiety because you don't feel as out of control and unsafe when you feel that that feeling of connection so we can do some things like that that can help with the anxiety but a very big thing for me in general when it comes to our feelings is we want to embrace what's there and not run away from what's there you can't get rid of it and even another part of therapy people come in and say I don't like this part of myself, get rid of it. And it's not that we can get rid of any part of yourself. What really we want to do is embrace all the aspects of yourself and bring them together. Because even that anxious part of yourself, it's serving some purpose. Now, maybe it's a smoke alarm that's going off too often. Actually, I like that analogy that uh, came up in a book I read maybe two years ago um, by Dr. Ness, I think it was. That, you know, our feelings sometimes can be like a smoke alarm. So it goes off and you usually, it means nothing, right? And it keeps going off, but it feels very real. So you can even embrace that part and be like, you know what? This is the part of me that worries, that's trying to protect me, that it doesn't know what's going on. So it makes sense that it's feeling scared or not sure. But I'm going to talk to it and maybe see that I can realize it's not that bad. And so we can bring ourselves a little bit back to maybe a, a more calm feeling but we should all expect that we likely will have a higher anxiety level these days when things are uncertain. It can be helpful at times to recognize there's things we can't control and try to accept those things that we can't control, but do as much as we can with the things you can control. So when you start thinking about uh, the economy and these things and what's going to happen and what's going to happen with the world, things that you might have 
little or almost no control over, try to shift your perspective also to what you can control in your own life. Well, I can go for a walk right now, or I can do something that feels good to me, or I can meditate later today. That might help. Take control of what you can control. Try to release control of what is out of your control because you can't control it anyway. All you can do is really hurt yourself and drive yourself crazy trying to figure it out. Well, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Again, the book of the week, Eight Dates by John Gottman and Julie Schwartz Gottman. Thank you to everyone who joined me also on Instagram Live and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>